Um, yeah, in God we trust. That we're going to be doing this over the month of February into March. And today's the introduction and overview to this sermon. And uh, the scripture we're going to have a look at today is Mark 9, verse 2 to 10, 14 to 27. It's an absolute monster. It's really long. But I really like it. I hope you like it too. And uh, just, yeah, make sure you're, you're paying attention. And it was funny. I was just thinking I feel really sorry for my Bible because this, this morning I was, I was <laughs> having, having breakfast, bacon and eggs, and I spilt, spilt baked beans on my Bible. And I thought, that is something I've literally never done before. Like, and then I thought about it, and I thought I've spilt baked beans, coffee, toothpaste, all sorts of things over my Bible. So it's seen better times. Delicious. That's right. Okay. So Mark chapter 9. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began, began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk, and whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. 
A murmur ran through the crowd as people said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. There's three things in this story today that I want to talk to you about trust. If I can just juggle my water again. And these three things are the struggle to keep trusting, the struggle to start trusting, and the help to overcome. So the struggle to keep trusting. The transfiguration on the top of Mount Hermon that we've just read about has these amazing parallels with Moses getting the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. Both Jesus and, Mo- and Moses, they ascend for a period of time, leaving behind them on the ground people who are trusting in God and doing really well. But then Moses refer- returns to find the Israelites worshipping the golden calf, and Jesus returns to find that the faith of the other disciples has been overcome by doubt. As they've ascended up the mountain and then descended, they've come back to find that people are in disorder. You know, it's easy to trust in Jesus, or it was easy for the disciples to trust in Jesus while they could see him and while he was with them. But then once he went up and away from them, they were overcome by doubt overcome by anxiety and and fear in just one day. It was 40 for Moses' people, the Israelites, and he was just the earthly messenger, but Jesus is the greater Moses, and in just one day, they totally fail. You know, when Jesus learns of the failure of the other disciples, he says to them in verse 19, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? And When I first read this, I found it really hard to come to terms with. You know, if Jesus speaks like this to his disciples who really trust him, but just in one moment have failed, then how will he speak to me? How will he deal with me when my faith falters? You know, and how will he deal with you when your faith falters? When you try to trust him but you fail, because we all have those moments. You know, the the disciples who are on top of the mountain with him, Peter, James, and John, in that moment, they are mature in their faith. They're doing really well. But all of them, their trust falters. I think it was only one of them or maybe even none of them that were even standing at the cross at the very end. You know, so on the mountain, Jesus reveals his incredible power. His clothes become dazzling white. It says far wider than any earthly bleach could make them. So if you can just picture nappy sand oxy action, times that by 100, I mean, then you get Jesus' clothes. Moses and Elijah appear and they talk with him, and they're supposed to be dead. And then the voice of God, the Father, booms from the cloud, just like that same voice boomed from the cloud that overshadowed Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And the voice says, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And having seen how powerful he is, we now know that he has the power to smite these other disciples. In, in just a blink of an eye or a thought, he could totally wipe them out. 
but he doesn't. He shows restraint. But even so, what about the rebuke? He sounds like he's absolutely going to town on him, like he just wants to punch him in the face. What's the deal with that? You know, in his rebuke, we, we see his sorrow. Sorrow at the unbelief of the other nine disciples. And we need to let the, the sorrow of Jesus and his rebuke stand. I think that as Christians, when we fail, we maybe sometimes we just want to get away from our failure. And so we just kind of like totally overestimate God's grace. Oh, he can't be sad. He's just mild-mannered, cute and cuddly. He, he doesn't mind if I sin. Before this moment, if you look in the Old Testament, God was just wiping people out when they sinned. Just killing them left, right and center if they were unholy in his eyes. So if these guys have been unholy, why doesn't Jesus just wipe them out now? But he doesn't. He shows restraint. We also see his sorrow at the, in a general sense at the realization that his work is far from finished. We can't see his rebuke as him being resentful or exploding in anger, but it's actually just, it's anguish. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets, he, he drinks from the, the cup of suffering, but here it's like he's getting a taste from the cup. He's realizing, you know what, your failure just confirms to me that it's not time for me to go. In fact, I need to stay. So what he's saying is he's not, he's, it's not a veiled threat that if you keep sinning, I'm going to go. It's actually more of a pledge to stay. Because of your unbelief, my time hasn't yet come. And I'm here to stay until I can get you to that point where you're ready for me to go, to ascend once again. You know, and staying on earth brought Jesus sorrow. On the cross, incredible sorrow. But just actually remaining on earth and staying here, living in human form, separated from his father, attacked by many people, unaccepted and rejected by many others, that was a source of anguish for him, an incredible source of anguish. And I'll just read you this incredible passage that I found in Isaiah 53, just as I was preparing for my sermon. It's Isaiah 53, verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Now even though the the sin of the disciples caused Jesus pain. He neither explodes nor withdraws. He doesn't destroy them for their failures because 
soon he will be destroyed for their failures. And we, we see in this, we catch a glimpse of the cross. That's why he doesn't wipe them out. He's ushering in a new era. He doesn't abandon them either. And he stays with them until the cross because his time has not come. You know, Jesus, God's character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's just now his grace and his mercy is taking on a far richer and greater meaning than it did before. So that's the struggle to keep trusting. Now let's look at the struggle to start trusting. This poor man, he brings his son to Jesus because he's heard rumors about this man who has incredible powers to heal. And what's bringing him to Jesus is a desire for his son to be healed. That's what any parent would do with a child who just can't be healed by any medical remedy or any magician or any, anybody else, even the disciples. But he doesn't really believe in his heart that Jesus can do it. And we can see that in the way he asks for Jesus to help. He says, help us and have mercy on us if you can. Can you hear that? If you can. Jesus hears that if. The man's if reveals his absence of faith in Jesus' power. So Jesus responds with two ifs to highlight the man's doubt and also to reveal the necessity and the power of faith. He says, what do you mean, if I can, anything is possible, if a person believes? He's saying that the barrier to the miracle you seek isn't any lack of power on my part. It's the lack of your trust and your faith in my power. And I think I, think I read a, a commentary and it's like, as the man put an if on the power of Jesus, Jesus puts an if on the faith of the man. And Jesus is inspiring the man towards faith and trust in him. And it works. This is a turning point. It's like we see this ignition and this spark of faith within his soul. His faith is stirred up. It suddenly rises. But as he goes to apply it, he finds himself... Sorry, my notes are going all over the place. He finds himself filled with unbelief. Have you ever found that in your own life? It's like doubt in his mind is fighting against this faith and this trust in his heart. And he's having this totally conflicting experience. And he can see Jesus. So we can't. We can't see God, but he can. Yet he's totally struggling. So he cries out. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Can faith and doubt coexist? Can you feel the both, both of them at the same time? Alexander McLaren wrote a great commentary on what's happening here. He says that the, the man's faith is genuine and real because of his sorrow at how small his faith was. He says that sorrow for the lack of some form of goodness is itself a proof of the partial possession. He didn't know how much he didn't believe until he tried to believe. And then as he tries to believe, he's filled with sorrow at his 
unbelief. So if sorrow in this man can show proof of the partial possession, you could also say that people who come to church, even like this one here, and just to kind of, I don't know, overestimating his grace, got no, no real kind of concern about the consequences of their sin, are just happy going along, doing their own thing, saying it's all good, he forgives me. He's mild-mannered, he's cute, he's cuddly. That's just deleting the transfiguration. It's just reducing his power. It's seeing his grace this big. It's magnifying that, but minimizing his justice and his judgment. And so if sorrow in this man can, can sorrow for what he lacks shows proof of what he partially possesses, you could also say, say that no sorrow should send alarm bells in a person's mind and in their heart if, if they're just kind of coasting through life, just unaffected, unworried by this presence of habitual sin. You know, to differing degrees, every Christian experiences the same tension as the man. The presence of God within us says, yes, believe in Jesus, while our earthly body and nature says, no, that can't be right. You know, and I, I find for myself, even when, I'm, even when I was doing this sermon, it was just a really convicting experience because I have this moment quite often where a thought comes into my mind about something I should put into the sermon. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But then I start getting really anxious and really worried that, wait, is that my thought or is it God's thought? Wait, is God really with me or am I doing this on my own? What if I stuff up? And it's just like this escalating kind of experience where I feel like the man in the story. You know, I know I'm going to preach on Sunday about trust, yet here I am and I'm struggling. Faith and doubt coexist in the man. And he, and he struggles with all his might to trust Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus wipe him out? Does Jesus turn away? How does he respond? He still heals the man's son because even the small measure of faith that the man had was sufficient. His weak faith was still faith. His weak faith was still faith. Some of us are too quick to doubt the genuineness of our faith because of our doubts. Like there are some of us that are just complacent and like, yeah, it's all good. I just sin as much as I want to and it's, it's all good. But then there's other people that, that even though we, we try like the man, we can never really have an assurance of our faith because of the presence of doubt. But within us, we have two natures. We have God in our heart, but we also have this fleshly, earthly nature which wars against us. And to just kind of go, eh, my salvation isn't for real because I feel the, the presence of the doubt, is that just takes you inward, leads to despondency, and it doesn't actually take you outward towards Jesus. And it's like, it's like you're taking more responsibility for your sin than you need to. Like if you just stay in that place, that's just shame. That's just cut off from God. But what does the man do? 
He looks to Jesus for help. He doesn't stay within, us, within himself. That conflicting experience of the mind versus the, the heart, the mind that says no, the heart that says yes, he deals with that. And this brings me to my final point, the help to overcome. The goal is to overcome doubt, not eradicate doubt. Because we can't do that. The three guys on top of the mountain, Peter, James and John, they all have massive crises in their faith. So the man's prayer, or the man's, what, what he does, he, it's, it's basically just saying, help me overcome my unbelief. And that should be our goal each day. Lord, help me today to overcome the doubts, the pressures and the anxieties I'll feel Lord, though I feel them, I know I don't need to act on them or obey on them. And there is a difference between feeling it and acting on it and being overcome by it. But in his strength, we can overcome the doubt, the fears, the anxieties, rather than being overcome by them. And the goal is to grow in spiritual maturity. Over time, our faith and trust in God should grow stronger rather than just growing weaker or remaining stagnant. So how do we do this? How do we overcome doubt and grow in our faith and trust in Jesus? And there's just one thought I'd like to share, and that is just to let our doubts and difficulties drive us to Jesus instead of to despondency. And I've already kind of touched on this. But when the doubt surfaced within the man, it says immediately he cried out. And what does Jesus do? He heals the man's son, even in response to the weak faith. If your faith in Jesus had to be perfect before you could become a Christian, would there be any Christians? I mean, how do you, how do you know when you've arrived there? You know, when Peter got out of the boat and walked towards Jesus on the water, doubts and fears caused him to sink and he's beginning to drown. He's scared. And what does he do? He calls out to Jesus. He says, Lord, save me. He doesn't go inside of himself going, oh, no, I've stuffed up again. Better go to Kurong, get another book, start a plan, get my life right. Got to do Stephen Furtick or whatever his name is. Got to, man, got to get some podcasts into me. Not that those are bad things, but he doesn't go within himself into despondency, he looks to Jesus for help. And what happens? He calls out, Lord, save me. And immediately, it says that word, immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand to catch him. And you know what Jesus says to him when he catches his hand and stops him sinking any further and pulls him up on top of the water. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And again, it, it sounds harsh. It sounds like a sting. But if you look into it, even in response to weak faith, Jesus responds to it. Not saying, hey, let's just go through life having weak faith. It's just saying, hey, let's not, because of our weak faith, walk away from Jesus and not look to Jesus. Let's go in that state of weak faith, say, Lord, help me reach out to him. Reach out to him for help. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's what King David did. 
That's what the disciples did, except for Judas. So are you being overcome by your doubts? Are you sinking into fear and anxiety? Jesus is the help you need. And if all you have right now is just a little bit of faith, then put that faith in him and find the strength to overcome.